doing something a little bit different this Sunday. I'm going to take a break from 1 Corinthians. And um, this morning our scripture text comes from the Gospel of John. And um, it is a scene of John the Baptist reflecting and exalting the person of Jesus. Uh, so our scripture is uh, John chapter 3, right after the very famous verses about how God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Um, and this is John the Baptist and his disciples. But um, verses 22 through 36 of the Gospel of John, hear God's word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aneon near Selim, because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to the fact that he, to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. He's, he sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not believe or does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that we might hear the voice of the bridegroom as John heard the voice and that it would make our joy complete. In Jesus' name, amen. John the Baptist was a prominent role, has, a, has a prominent role in all the Gospels. He is the first person to draw public attention um, to Jesus' identity as the Messiah. John is a transitional figure in the Bible. He was widely recognized to be a prophet, a prophet in the line of Elijah. Uh, but he was no ordinary prophet. He was in a, in a, a kind of a liminal figure, somebody who stood on the threshold or on the threshold of a doorway. And the threshold of that doorway was the world between what we call the Old Testament and the world of the New Testament. Um, John was through and through an Old Testament man. He was the very last prophet in the traditional sense. He was the last prophet. Um, but he was given this distinct privilege and task of opening the door between these two ages of salvation history and then pointing us in the direction 
that we should go as we go through that door, ushering us through the door. And it's really significant that each gospel, all four gospels, even John here, um, they, they quote the same verse in regards to um, John's ministry, and this is the verse from Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This was John's life verse. <laughs> uh, he quoted it for sure time and time again, which is why it gets recorded in all the Gospels. <clears throat> and all the Gospels uh, paint a very consistent portrait and picture of John um, and his ministry. But the Gospel of John in particular gives a real definition and clarity to it and calls him a witness, that John is the witness. That is his identity in the Gospel of John. And this word witness in the Gospel of John in particular is, is a, a technical term that, that John uses. Um, a witness is someone who speaks with insight into the true identity of Jesus. A witness is somebody who, who, who testifies to the true identity of Jesus. And so John the Baptist is the witness. And in the Gospel of John, he becomes a model of what the disciples will someday become on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, witnesses that point, that testify. Even in the prologue of the Gospel of John about the Word becoming flesh, and um, there's, there's sandwiched in there reflection on John the witness. John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John is the witness, and what's important about John as a witness is that witness forms the whole of his life. Witness forms the whole of his life. Being a witness wasn't simply his day job. Um, being a witness shaped all his thinking and all his, his acting. Um, witness was a way of life for John. Um, and what, you, what I love about this particular story of John the Baptist and the dialogue here is we get a little bit of insight into John's, what you might call his spirituality of witness. Um, and it's, it's summed up in that, that pithy phrase, uh, um, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the essence of John's life, kind of distilled into a phrase, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must get bigger, I must get smaller. Jesus must get more attention, I must get more, less attention. Jesus must get more glory, I must get less. Jesus must be more the focus of life, I must become less of the focus. This is John's view of growth, and this is his view of, of the direction of his life. And it is a very radical view of the self. <laughs> um, it's a very countercultural way to think about growth and maturity. He must increase, I must decrease. In our culture, I think we're taught the exact opposite at this point. <laughs> We live in a culture that David Brooks describes as the culture of the big me. Um, growth and maturity um, is actually involves the increase <laughs> of ourself, um, the expansion of ourself, not the decrease of it. And just think about a lot of the different slogans that sort of float around the ether of our cultural atmosphere. Be all that you can be. 
Believe in yourself. Invest in you. Be an army of one. You need to do you. These are just a few. Um, If our culture has any idea or concept of discipleship, of who we ought to follow, it is that we ought to be disciples to ourselves, to our true selves, right? Be true to yourself. At the end of the day, the only person we're responsible to and answerable to is ourselves. And so you have to be true to yourself. And so maturity and growth is a kind of increase of the self, right? Coming to know who you really are and following that person. And the reality is, is that in a, you know, the self is religion of a secular age. Worship of the self, our self, is the religion of a secular age. It's virtues, our independence, self-assurance, confidence, self-expression. Its commands are be good to yourself, forgive yourself, stick up for yourself, demand respect and dignity. Its influences seek influence and be happy. Get followers, build your platform, build, add to your resume, and its faith is in itself, right? Believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, anything is possible, right? If you watch much sporting events on TV, um, it feels like about a third of the commercials are at least are all sort of deal with um, how awesome you are or I am or how much potential we have. Um, I'm not going to give any examples because I don't want the the, the slogans running through your heads. Um, But advertisers are very keen. They know what pulls the heartstrings and what motivates us as human beings. And what deeply motivates us is ourselves, right? A belief that we can do more, that we are great, we, we can be awesome, right? I mean, just watch some NBA, you know, commercials during the playoffs or any sporting event, and you're bound to see um, a lot of inspirational stuff around the self. That's why John is so radical. He must increase, I must decrease. Again, in a world that makes the self the true object of faith and worship, John the Baptist is a heretic. (laughs) He's a heretic. I think Mark Sayers is right um, from the quote in the beginning of our worship folder when he says that in a culture that worships the self, the most countercultural thing one can do is break its only taboo to commit self-disobedience. To acknowledge that authority does not lie with us, that we are ultimately have no autonomy, to admit that we are broken, that we are rebellious against God and his rule, to admit that Christ is ruler, to abandon our rule and collapse into his arms of grace. The radical nature of John's ministry is that he calls people to self-disobedience. He calls us to self-disobedience. That's at the heart of what repentance really is. And it doesn't sound like very much fun, right? (laughs) If you, again, are measuring what it means to be a self by our culture's standards, this doesn't sound like a very attractive way to live. He must increase, I must decrease. But that's not at all how John saw it. For John, this is the joyous life. This is the path to true joy. This is the path to true blessedness. John says in verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Jesus' increase and John's decrease um, makes John's joy complete. 
The truth is, is that there's more joy when Jesus is the object of our life than we, when we are the object of our life. That's the essence of what this verse means. There's, there's far more joy when Jesus is the object of our lives than when I make myself the object of my life. Now, how does this work exactly? What does it mean to, for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease? It's helpful to ex- kind of explore this dialogue a little bit more in the context of what, what was happening. There's a dispute that arises between John's disciples and another uh, person just named a Jew um, over purification rites. And this conversation leads to another uh, conversation about Jesus baptizing. Um, now, it's a little confusing the Gospel of John because in just the next chapter, chapter 4 in the very beginning, it, it's John tells us Jesus didn't baptize anybody. It was actually his disciples who were baptizing. But here, it makes it seem like Jesus is baptizing. Um, but John's disciples seem to be miffed, um, a little upset that John is not getting the recognition he deserves, right? He's the original baptizer, right? He's the OG of baptism. Like, he's the guy where it all began. And they, and everybody seems to be flocking to Jesus and being baptized by Jesus. And so you can imagine as followers of, of John, they feel a little bit diminished, right? Like, you know, you started it, you know, rabbi, and now everybody seems to go to Jesus. And what John says is, is really significant. He sa- it, he's like, this is exactly how it should be. This is exactly how it should be. Um, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, my joy, the jo- this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. John understands something about himself that I think many of us uh, struggle to realize and to embrace in a kind of deep down way. And, and it's this, that John knows he's a role player. He's a role player. He's a role player in salvation history. He knows he's not the star of the team. He doesn't need to be the star. He's just a role player. But again, like we live in a culture in which, in a way, we're all told that we can be stars. Whether we're literally stars, we should all have an opportunity to shine like stars, whether it's a real star or not. And again, I always, I've been watching a lot of NBA basketball right now, so one of the things you find that when you watch uh, a lot of sports, but the NBA in particular, is you have a lot of guys that are really talented, and they want to be the star. They want, they want to be the ones in which everything revolves around them, taking the key shots, finishing the game. And so there, there's a sense they don't really realize, no, you're a role player, you're not a star. They're good at a few things. But John understands he's a role player, right? He has a very specific job. He's good at a couple things, baptizing people and a pretty strong message of repentance. But he's not the star. Jesus is the star. In the kingdom of God, there's only one star, and we all are just role players. All of us are just role players. John knows this. He knows this. He knows that his role is simply to clear-cut a path. He's, he's, he's like God's bulldozer. His job was just to clear-cut a path for the Messiah through the forest. So it's preparatory. That's why he keeps, you know, um, 
quoting this verse from Isaiah 40 over and over again in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. I mean, I think if it was 2021, John Supermetal, he would have it tattooed on his chest. I'm certain of that. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. That's his mission. That's his purpose. He knows who he is. He knows what the Lord has called him to, and he has received it in a deep down way. Now, aside from the person of Jesus, there are a few people in the Bible that have, have more, what you might call, inner clarity about who they are and what the Lord has called them to than the person of John. John knows who he is. He knows what the Lord has called him to do. He's what, in, um, you know, counselors or psychologists might call a very well-differentiated person. He, he has this, this very clear sense of who he is. And, and how he's come about to have this clarity of self is, is simply by spending all the time he has spent in the presence of the Lord. Especially presence of the Lord in the wilderness, where he is, there's this clarity about who he is and what the Lord has called him to do. This is very important for John's mission, because if you know what John's mission is all about, it's, he's, God has really said, I'm calling you to preach repentance to the whole nation of Israel, from the most powerful people to the least powerful people. I want you to call them to repentance and tell them the ways in which they are disobedient. And so what John's whole ministry is becomes set over against the whole nation of Israel, the most powerful people he calls out. And of course, the way his, his life ends is as a consequence of that, he's beheaded because he called out Herod's adultery. John knew what his mission was, he knew what his purpose was, and he receives it as a gift. He knows who he is. And the successes that he has experienced in terms of people coming out to him and embracing him, he doesn't rest in those things. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Even the good things that he receives or accomplishes, even the ministry he sees that has been fruitful, he doesn't rest in that. He doesn't doesn't build him, his identity or his ego around that. That's precisely what his disciples were doing. You know, like, John, you should be offended. There's, this Jesus is sort of fronting your turf here. But this is not how John bases his identity. That's why he doesn't feel threatened. He doesn't feel disappointed. It's actually quite the opposite. His life is given to serving Jesus. And it is his great joy to see Jesus' profile eclipse his own. It is his greatest joy in life to be eclipsed by the glory of Jesus. That's why he says, he must increase, I must decrease. John's humility um, gives him a real sense of peace and, and security as a person. He knows who he is before the Lord. As I was Reflecting on John's posture, I was reminded of Psalm 131 and in the way that the, the kind of humility of the psalmist is reflected in John. Oh Lord, my, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is within my soul. He has no ambition beyond what God has given him. And he is completely at peace and in joy of that. 
John embodies humility. And humility is, um, what is humility? Humility is the right estimation of ourselves. It is the right estimation of ourselves. It is to know ourselves truly, as we truly are, before the Lord. And the opposite of humility is pride. Pride is to have an inflated sense of oneself, to grasp or to claim more for yourself than it is given, to live beyond your limits as a creature. See, to be a proud person isn't necessarily to be somebody who likes to brag and to thump their chest about how awesome they are or how great they are. It is possible to be a very prideful person and to be uh, completely (laughs) self-loathing, to hate yourself. Because, again, the, the, the question of pride has to do with the way that we make ourselves the center of the universe. The way we interpret all of reality through our experience to where we can't get beyond ourselves. We assert ourselves over against God. We assert ourselves over against one another. And just very briefly, like, so the proud, traditionally proud person who is very, uh, has a high view of themselves and their, their powers and capacities, say, God, I don't need your help. <clears throat> I got this on my own. But there's another pride. The flip side is the person who feels sorry for themselves or pities themselves or feels like, and cannot receive God's love. God, I'm not worthy. I will never receive your love. You can't possibly love me. And there's a way in which that itself is its own form of pride because you're not willing to let go of yourself. See, pride has 100,000 different subtle ways in which it strikes us. And the opposite of pride is humility. The reality is, is that human beings, when we try to make ourselves the center, um, that's what pride is, to occupy the center. We were not created to occupy the center. <laughs> when we try to occupy the center of our lives or of life in general, it is soul-crushing. You weren't created for that. It's like putting, um, it's like putting a, you know, like think of life as a spoke, and you're, you're putting at the middle this sort of wheel or this uh, cylinder that's made of tinfoil, and all the, all the spokes are pressing down on it. And it, it's, it's deep insecurity, right? You were, we were not made to occupy the center. Only God is. And so, like John, when we can say, he must increase, I must decrease, this is liberating. It is to be able to receive ourselves from God, our gifts, our talents, our success, and to be able to find joy in what we have been given and not be frustrated and envious of what we don't have or what we haven't accomplished he must increase, I must decrease. Again, it's, it's easy for us to misunderstand humility, to think that humility is to have a negative self-image or to have a lower view of yourself, to not be uh, the, human, the humble person lacks confidence, um, doesn't think they have much to contribute, um, doesn't have much to offer. This is not at all what humility is. This is not true humility. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, humility is not this is a summary of C.S. Lewis. Uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less about yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less about yourself. The humble person doesn't have a self, negative self-image. The humble person doesn't lack confidence. The humble person simply is able to think less about themselves. They're not self-preoccupied, whether it's with their pain and suffering, 
or whether it's with their accomplishments, the humble person is able to look beyond themselves and to see the world with clarity in the presence of God. And John's this kind of person. And, and, the, and the fruit of this humility for John is joy. The fruit of humility is joy. <clears throat> the humble person is a joyful person. The humble person is a joyful person. To not be able to experience joy in life um, is to not be able to receive what God has given and all the various gifts. <clears throat> and John's humility with regard to his own role within the kingdom of God allows him to experience um, joy, the joy of Jesus and his increasing presence and fame. Jesus is the hidden joy of all creation and John knows it. Jesus is the hidden joy of all creation. And that's why he uses this, this beautiful imagery, the, perhaps um, aside from birth, um, the, the other thing the most powerfully witnesses to joy, which is out of a wedding. Um, he uses the imagery of a wedding party to capture this idea. He says, the one who, who has the bridegroom is the bride, or one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Jesus is the bridegroom and Israel's the bride, or the people of God are his bride. John is not at all upset that the bride is attracted to the bridegroom. He's not the bridegroom. Jesus is. He's the best man in the wedding. His job there is as a witness, right, at the wedding. This is the bridegroom. Isn't he wonderful? Go to him. And this, what John says, is joy. But not just joy at hearing the bridegroom's voice and seeing the bride go to the bridegroom, but he says this is completing joy. This is life-completing joy. It's a really incredible statement that my life is fulfilled. It has reached its zenith. Its completion of joy is found in this very relationship here that I played a role that led the bride to the bridegroom. This is the source of John's joy. He's so happy and joyous that God's people have found their bridegroom. So John's spirituality witness is a model for our own in, in a number of ways. First, he shows us that all of our lives as Christians needs to be a kind of preparation for the coming of the bridegroom. It's the second coming of the bridegroom, not the first, but all of our lives and in the way we think about it, should be thinking about the coming of the bridegroom and what does it mean for us to be witnesses, to kind of clear the ground, to announce who, his name and who he is to others, to invite others to the wedding. There's a lot of different ways that we could apply this, but that, that is one of the central ways of what it means to be um, a witness. But the second one, too, is that when we commit ourselves to preparing the way for the Lord, of being witnesses. In this work, there is great joy. <laughs> great, great joy. Life-completing joy. But there's something about this joy that is quite unique to John that I've started to talk about, but I need to clarify even more. That the joy is not just a byproduct of, of John's humility. It's not just a byproduct that he just, he's learned to love the work for what it is, the good and the bad. No, the joy has a very distinct, distinct content and the content of that joy is Jesus himself. It is the person of Jesus himself. Do you remember when John 
The first time that John met Jesus, remember the first time that John met Jesus? He was in his mother's womb, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, being a cousin of Mary, went to, and both women are pregnant. And and Luke records this in chapter 1. It says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, John leapt in her womb. (laughs) Isn't that a beautiful picture? That, That John comes into the presence of Jesus. As a, as a child in, the, in utero, and he senses, I'm in the presence of the bridegroom. There's something going on here. And he leaps for joy. That is a, a beautiful picture of how Jesus, again, he is the hidden joy of all creation. And as a witness, John's whole life is given to bearing witness to this. And he goes on in this text. There's so much more in this passage that we don't have time to explore. But... John goes on to comment even more about the nature of this of, G- of Jesus and who he is. For, for he whom God has sent has uttered the words of God, for he gives the, one, gives the Spirit without measure. Whoever, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I messed up that. He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things um, into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, John's deep joy in Jesus is the way in which Jesus reveals the fullness of God. The fullness of God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Knowing Jesus and bearing witness to him means coming to know Jesus, um, not just as, as a man, who is a second cousin or something, but, but as Jesus in relationship to the Father, as the one that has been sent by the Father for the salvation of God's people. He was sent into the world by the Father, and just prior to this, Jesus was discoursing in his most famous statement that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the, son, that the world might be saved through him. Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission of love. Jesus was sent by the Father on a mission of love for the world, for the world's salvation. And Jesus is the one upon whom the Holy Spirit has been given without measure. See, all the prophets in the Old Testament were given the Spirit, but they were given with a measure. And John was given the Spirit with a measure. But, but in, in, in this statement here, what he is saying is that Jesus is not like any other prophet. He is given the Spirit without measure. He is given the Spirit without measure. That, that, that the Holy Spirit is, is 100, completely, total, um, surrounding this man's life. And he, someday, will give it as a gift to us. The very presence of God and his love. The Son has a spirit without measure, and the reason He has it is He is from above. He's the one that we read about in Isaiah 6. Before the foundations, before the, Jesus was ever born, He was exalted at the right hand of the Father. The Son fully reveals God's loving heart to the world, and He bears with Him the full presence of God that He will give to us. The heart of God is His love for the world. But I think what's really important, especially on a Trinity Sunday, to remember that God's love for the world 
is secondary. God's love for the world is secondary. His primary love is his love for himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God's love for us is secondary. It is the fruit. It is the byproduct. It is the outflow. That's what John means. It says the Father loves the Son and has given everything to him. See, at the end of the day, that's why everything, that's why he must increase and we must decrease. And again, the paradox here is that when we do that, that's when we actually find ourselves. That's when we find our true selves. That's when we find true love and true joy in the world, when we are drawn up into God's own triune love. John knew this triune love. He understood that it was the secret pathway to a joyous life. He must increase. I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks for Jesus, the joy of all creation, the joy of our hearts. Teach us what it means to apply John's statement, he must increase, I must decrease, to our lives. All of us in different ways. All of us, Lord, here are proud. <laughs> all of us exalt ourselves, and we, we, we're so subtle in the ways we do it. Teach us, Lord, to set ourselves aside to make room for Jesus and then to know the great joy it is to see and to hear the bridegroom's voice. And so, Lord, as we go to this table now, this is a picture of the future wedding feast of the Lamb and the great celebration when the bridegroom and the bride will be united in the flesh not just in the spirit, but in the flesh, and we can hear your voice and see your face in person. Seal this truth and reality upon our hearts as we come to this table. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.